Welcome to the MI Hunting Podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by biologist Christy Sitar as we talk about the factors limiting deer abundance in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. All right, welcome to the MI Hunting Podcast. Thank you again for joining. Now, again, yeah, this is a really good conversation with Christy Sitar. Um, you know, basically, I was kind of looking into uh, kind of the deer numbers in the UP, you know, especially with the conversation around the wolf population. Uh, basically, it looks like the population up in the UP is uh, essentially stabilized. Uh, they've, they have tracked that the, deer, the wolf population is kind of, you know, basically started to spread out throughout the uh, whole UP kind of evenly. So I was curious to see um, kind of what the deer population is looking like in regards to that. And I came across this report that Chrissy had, uh, you know, co-written with another biologist. And it basically went into a lot of the factors that are affecting uh, essentially buck harvest. Now, again, when I went into reading this report, I kind of had a misconstrued, uh, you know, look at you know, this was going to be uh, an estimate of overall deer population. It does it in a way, but we're again, it's just looking at buck harvest, especially in regards to uh, the these different factors that uh, are spelled out in the report here. So, and as Christy will explain, you know, it does go into uh, a little bit about the correlation between the buck harvest and the general, you know, assumption of what the deer population looks like for the UP uh, and the relationship between that. And it breaks down basically the main factors, um, and, the, and that's really between uh, the habitat, the condition of deer in winter, and how winter's uh, affecting them and then also on predation and basically breaking down those different factors and you know kind of how they you know kind of piece everything together you know and their relationship as to that affecting buck harvest um, throughout the, the upper peninsula Let's not hold up the conversation any longer. So let's get into uh, that discussion with Christy. Uh, let you go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do with the, the DNR. Uh, sure. So my name is Christy Sitar. I am the wildlife biologist here in the Newbury uh, Forest Management Unit in the Eastern Upper Peninsula. And I just passed my 25 years working for the state of Michigan, and I think 21 of that 20 or 21 of that is with the dnr the first yeah. few were with um uh, what was deq back then so okay and then have you been primarily up in the up then doing most of your work or have you been across the state um all in the up except for the first year i was a biologist down in um jackson county for a year when i first started and then i've been up in the up ever since then i'm not from michigan originally but i did go to grad school at michigan state as you can see by the t-shirt <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah okay so yes yeah, so i wanted to reach out to you um like we had discussed you know through email and prior to starting the recording that you know i stumbled upon a report that you were part author 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 of mm -hmm. and uh 
Um, it's about the the deer numbers up in the UP, and I know that you know there's a you know a trend of where the deer numbers are are low, and actually it appears to be that they're declining still. And I know there's a big uh, group of the uh, the population that's concerned about it, and I know the wolf pop population and you know gets into the discussion as well. And you in this report you dive into um, it seems like all the big factors are playing into into those deer numbers. And I just wanted to talk to you about it and dive into a little bit about what the report said. Yep, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Um, I've given a few talks about it um, in the last couple of years as well. Uh, and okay. the, the, yeah, the, that information is, um, it's the same information, but I've been able to um, touch on it a bit more in a presentation than in the paper, so. Oh, excellent, okay. And then since, since the report came out, um, has has some of the data changed significantly, or is it still pretty consistent with what um, with the, what the report indicates? Yeah, so the the data that this report is based on is a lot of it is from the Michigan Predator Prey Research Study. So that has that was um, completed. So there's there's not been new data sources. Of course, winter is still marching on. Um, so there's more winter data since the report uh, concluded, as well as more buck harvest data, um, but no more new data other than those sources. And I mean, there's always, of course, you know, one of the things that's in this paper is um, a little bit of um, a little bit of a look at uh, hemlock harvest or hemlock decline um, over, you know, since uh, pre-settlement times and changing aspen harvest, that stuff is still, of course, that is still occurring in Michigan as well, but it's not something that we've gone back and looked at, and we also don't really expect much of a change in those areas either. But so sure. the long and the short of it is, uh, I guess I'll just say, yeah, every year that um, we exist, uh, you know, more deer are harvested and winter still continues, but no other new data as far as the sources of predation and that sort of thing. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so, you know, basically the, it looks like the report kind of starts out with, you know, talking about how the estimates are calculated by the number of buck harvest. Can you explain how, you know, that buck harvest translates into calculating what the, the deer population looks like? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll try to be real brief on, on things um, just so we can get through everything you want. And if you want more of an explanation, I'll let you ask follow-up questions. But Okay. Yeah, so um, so we don't we don't have estimates of deer population size, right? Um, and we're probably not ever going to. Um, and so the the best so we looked at a couple different things. We looked at buck harvest, and we also looked at hunter effort, because there are some biases with buck harvest, right? Obviously, buck harvest is going to be impacted by the number of hunters that you have, and could be impacted by uh, declining hunter numbers and changes in in buck regulations that would happen over that same time period um, can be influenced by the weather during firearm season. Um, the buck harvest that we use in this report, though, is all seasons combined. Um, but, you know, if you have wicked, most of the, the deer harvest occurs during firearm season. And so if you had wicked awful weather during firearm season, you might expect that to decline also, um, as well as maybe even the, the day that the opener falls, right? If the opener falls on a Tuesday, we usually have lower participation than if it falls on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, right? Um, so those things can impact buck harvest, um, and a few less of those impact 
hunter effort if you looked at hunter effort but we didn't have a big data source for hunter effort we haven't we haven't collected that for the last 40 years um, and so we we did end up going with um, buck harvest we did so one of the um, one of the ways we could check that and see if we felt like it was an accurate representation of the population was in Crystal Falls, which is the mid snowfall zone um, in the in the that was where the predator prey um, study, pardon me, did their mid snowfall zone work. They had deer can they had all kinds of cameras out and they were calculating deer abundance through those camera surveys. And so um, in, I think it was an eight or 10 year period where we had deer abundance um, in the Crystal Falls area. And then we overlaid it with buck harvest just to see how good it was gonna track or not. And it actually tracks really, really well. So that made us feel pretty comfortable with using buck harvest, even though it's not a perfect measure. Again, like I said, we're not gonna have deer abundance for the whole UP. So we, we felt pretty comfortable using it after seeing how well it really tracked with deer abundance in that Crystal Falls and then Snowfall Zone area. Okay, so you're kind of looking at then if the buck harvest is high and I guess maybe the hunter effort was low, like if those two coincide, then you can estimate that the bucks or the deer population is up then? Is that how it's well, kind of tracked I mean, or yeah, calculated that, a bit? That would be a standard thought, right? That if your buck harvest was high and your effort was low, that your population was increasing. But we ended up not even using hunter effort because, again, like okay. I said, we just didn't have a good enough data set for gotcha. it. So. Okay. All right. And then the other thing I saw is that um, in part of the report, it talked, it was showing kind of the what the buck harvest, um, you know, kind of what the graph looked like and then how the regs uh, had changed. Um, you know, yep. kind of going down the timeline with that. Now, yep. is the the regs trying to you know, promote uh, higher buck harvest or trying to help the population out in any way? Is there a cause and effect with the population or the harvest and the regs and how they determined when they were going to start doing that up in the UP there? Well, so what I would say is that it's not so much a cause and effect, right? But and and the reason for different regulation changes is not necessarily related to, oh, we wanna increase the population of deer, so we're going to change this, this reg that affects buck harvest, right? So the regs that affect buck harvest um, are generally related, less related to having a population level impact and more related to the type of opportunity that's out there for hunters. Um, and so, okay. and, you know, and so that's changed from the 90s all the way through to where we are today. Um, you know, it used to be in the UP, you could you could take any two bucks in any seasons with no restrictions. Right. And so that, of course, is really different from the combo tag that exists today for buck harvest. Yep. Um, so those so those buck. The reason we put the regulation changes in the, the document was so it we didn't want it to look like we were um, ignoring the fact that regulation changes have occurred during this window also. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yep. So we just kind of wanted to put that out there front and center to show that yep there have been regulation changes, and they do okay. they do coincidentally coincide with a reduction in in buck harvest as well. But. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. When looking at the graph, I'm like okay, is there. Is it just following the same timeline or does it have something to, to do with those those figures that came out? So thank you for clarifying yep. that. 
Yeah, more like it's following the same timeline, especially because we can still, and we keep going back to that Crystal Falls population, right? We had population numbers and we overlaid buck harvest even when regulation changes were happening and they it still tracks, buck harvest still tracks well as a measure, as a, as a measure of index of the population. Doesn't mean it's the population size itself, but. Yeah, okay. All right, so then let's, um, you already touched base on talking about the the hemlock and the aspen um, and how that landscape has changed. So I guess let's talk about uh, you know why that why that we're seeing that trend where there's less aspen or not less aspen less of the hemlock and why that's important and then in regards to the aspen harvest why that is so important as well. Yep. So uh, hemlock and uh, hemlock and cedar are critical species. Um, that help deer overwinter. They're, they're critical shelter or critical cover. Sometimes we say shelter, sometimes we say cover, um, but they, they provide a different um, environment for deer that overwinter in the Upper Peninsula. And in the Upper Peninsula, of course, we get a fair bit of snow over most of the Upper Peninsula. And so deer have evolved to travel to, in most places in the UP, to travel to deer yards in winter also called deer wintering complexes. Um, the old language is deer yards, and it's really easy to keep using that old language because we've used it for decades. But so deer will, will travel um, from these high snowfall areas down generally to southern or central or southern parts of the UP where there's less snow. And those, those deer yards or deer wintering complexes tend to have uh, more cedar and hemlock. And that cedar and hemlock, um, they actually reduce the, there's less snow underneath cedar and hemlock in a deer yard in winter, especially when you have nice and densely packed stands. So there's less snow under there and it's actually a few degrees warmer. And both of those things are, are things that help deer survive the winter. If there's less snow, you're spending less energy walking around. If it's a little bit warmer, you're spending less energy keeping warm. So um, cedar and hemlock are both very, very important to deer. I would say critical for deer uh, overwintering in the upper peninsula. And the hemlock decline, you know, since um, pre-settlement days in the Upper Peninsula has been substantial. It's about a 97, I think is the number, percent decline since pre-settlement times. And that's, you know, that's unfortunate. Um, it's, you know, these days, uh, hemlock and cedar that occur in deer yards are definitely protected species. Um, they're not going to get harvested unless there's been an agreement with um, both divisions, wildlife division and forestry division to make that happen because those species are so critical. The reason I don't go into any information or any detail in cedar in this report is because cedar is, is oftentimes, in addition to there being cedar stands, cedar is oftentimes a component of other stands. And so it's a lot harder to track um, to, to track cedar, because if you just looked up cedar stands, um, it wouldn't necessarily get at any overall reduction in cedar across the landscape that way. So that's why cedar's not in there. Um, as far as aspen goes, aspen, we used aspen in this report as a, um, a measure of summer browse for species, right? So there are lots of other things that deer browse in summer also, but aspen, this aspen, um, was just looked at as as uh, what trends have occurred in summer browse for deer as well. And so 
um, there has been this reduction um, in cedar, I'm sorry, in Aspen um, over the years. And, you know, there were big pulses in the late 90s and that of that Aspen harvest. And so the, the reason Aspen is a browse species, of course, is because when you when Aspen is harvested, um, it puts out lots of little shoots and those shoots are really great deer browse, right? So, and they, they are only browsed until they grow beyond the reach of deer. And then of course they, they continue to grow into a mature stand again. And the reason that part of that decline has occurred is because once a bunch of Aspen is harvested and then it regrows, it, it's another 40 years before that Aspen can be harvested again and become a really great deer browse again, right? So, so the, the Aspen information in the report isn't meant to signify that there's poor summer deer browse everywhere. It's just meant to indicate that there are other things going on, one of which is the fact that there's less Aspen browse out there on the landscape because of this big pulse in the 90s. It's just not ready to harvest again. There is doesn't mean there's no Aspen harvest um, because, of course, there is. And it also doesn't mean there's no deer browse because there is still there are still other sources of deer browse as well. But it's an it's important thing to consider, at least. Gotcha. OK, I do want to go back to the hemlock and cedar, um, you know, with that decline. Is it just because of like harvest, you know, harvest of those trees and they're just not very good at regenerating or coming back? Um, yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. Yep. So when those species are are harvested, they will regenerate, right? They're they'll grow again from seed uh, in the seed bank, or they'll put up shoots. And so yeah, those trees regrow, but they are preferred browse species by deer in winter also. So if if okay. deer can reach them, they're going to eat them. And so when they can reach all those young cedar or hemlock that are uh, if, even if they grow to just above the snow. Well, then deer can reach them. They're going to eat them and, and continually browse them. And as a result, they don't reach the canopy and become a, replace themselves and become a mature tree in the stand again. Yep. Got Important So they just, yep. they just can't handle that browse to be able to, I guess, reestablish themselves then before there's. Yeah, they're slow enough growing, right? Aspen okay. grows quickly and can be browsed by deer. And in a few years, it's going to be way above deer height. Um, right. But cedar and hemlock are much slower growing and really just can't get above deer if they're constantly browsed like that gotcha. every year. So, yeah, so looking at those two things then that, you know, that could be, you know, just an indicator of, you know, their food source during the summer and then for the winter, especially because that's the, you know, when they're burning up all those fat reserves and whatnot, that's the critical time for them. So. Yep. When, winter is definitely critical, and that's when those species get browsed. That's when cedar and hemlock are preferred browses just during winter. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. All right. And then you also touched base on the, of course, you know, one of the biggest things that affect the the deer population, and especially in the UP, is during winter time and the winter weather. And I found it quite interesting that you know in the report it showed that there's a a growing trend of increased snow um, that's accumulating uh, more or less up in the UP. And, you know, that trend, I know that it looked like it did some kind of, you know, gaining and waxing um, within the data. Is this like a growing trend just that, that there, you may see those snow levels drop back down again um, below that like critical line that you talked about? Or is this something that's 
looks like it could be trending upward where you know snowfall could be higher just an average up in the up going forward yeah so i i think it's you know i i don't think it's necessarily um it's it's not necessarily a, a trend that is uh, you know it certainly isn't a trend that looks like it would be driven by climate change because it appears to be the opposite trend right so really right. what we're talking what we're talking about is when we have more than 90 days of of uh, uh winter with greater than a foot of snow on the ground greater than 12 inches when we have more than 90 days it's a severe winter and so kind of what you're referencing then is that if you look back at the um, the 80s and early 90s, up until the mid 90s, there were very, very few severe winters in the UP. And since the mid 90s to you know 2020 is when we when we kind of stopped for this data set for this paper, uh, we had an incredible um, number more. I think it was 60 some percent more. And I'm not looking at the number on the document, but um, uh, vast and large, vastly larger number of, here we go, a vastly higher number of severe winters since 96 than prior to 96. So when you hear people say, oh man, there were so many more deer in the late 80s. And you know, this is, this is what it's partly due to, of course, is the fact that we've, you know, back up until that period, there were just two severe winters. And since then we have had three different times we have had um, consecutive winters. I guess we've had two, two consecutive uh, periods of three severe winters in a row and two of back-to-back -back severe winters in a row. And only one time um, since I have worked here have we had three mild winters in a row. So those back-to-back -back, uh, severe winters, you might get a little break in there and then we have a light winter um, but, you know, one light winter isn't enough to to combat all those losses. And so that's that's where the winter weather really um, comes in. And if you if you put buck harvest, if you plot buck harvest on top of that winter severity trend, it's amazing how perfect that fit is. Right. So um, after severe winters, you know, we're, if you have a severe winter this year, it's next year's buck harvest that that shows a decline because your deer population has declined, right? So it's it's you get that one year lag and it's a perfect fit. Yeah, it was amazing looking at the graph, which again I I will uh, I'll probably you know link it in with the show so people can look through it, look at those uh -huh. graphs and everything like that. But yeah, it's 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 almost you know a perfect you know lineup of those buck harvests and then lining up with those severe winters, like you said, that one year lag um, kind of representing yeah. that next year. But yeah. Um, yeah. So you have was, three severe winters and then your deer population and your, your buck harvest declines for the next three years. And when you have mild winters, your buck harvest increases. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I guess, you know, when you're looking at uh, like a, a winter kill for, or for deer and whatnot, you know, what, Type of you know what percentage of the population are you considering, or is it you know when you kind of look at it, was it a hard winter? Are you able to give an estimate about you know how it would affect the general population of deer, or is that something that's not really tracked all that well? 
It's not tracked terribly well, but we have, you know, we've seen some numbers in the past that are kind of our, our gut check of where we think things are. So in a severe winter, you know, um, we could lose 100,000 deer in the Upper Peninsula. In a moderate winter, that number falls off drastically. And in a mild winter, it's a whole lot lower, right? And a lot of those deer that die in severe winters are, are fawns. They're really the first ones to die. Um, sure. Because they they go into winter, of course, with less body fat than other deer because they've been growing their body all summer, not putting fat on, but getting a bigger body, growing from a, a newborn fawn to a deer that's, that's still, of course, a fawn going into winter and a smaller body. So those smaller bodied deer have a larger surface area to body weight ratio, which makes them lose heat faster. And so they're they're spending more energy keeping warm because they lose heat faster they don't have fat reserves because they grew a body all summer and didn't put on a bunch of fat like adult deer would have. And so they sure. go into winter just in, in poorer shape overall and less equipped to be able to handle it. So your fawns are the, really the first one to die in winter. And that, that has um, a really big impact, of course, because your fawns are what cause your population to increase the following year, right? If you have X number of bucks and does going into winter and a really similar number coming out of winter, what increases your population is fawns added to that population. And so if your fawns from that, that were born that, um, that were, if your deer that go into winter as fawns largely all die because winter was severe, then you don't, you don't have those additions next year. Right. Right. In, in addition to that, your does that struggle through winter and are in very poor condition during winter when they're there. And of course that's when they're carrying a fetus. So when that doe, when spring happens for that doe, and if she's still alive and she's just in awful shape is she may reabsorb that fetus. She may abort that fetus and, or she may give birth to that fetus, that fawn at that point, but not have body resources to produce any quality milk and it still might die. Right. So the chance, so it affects the population in a couple different ways, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd seen reports before of, you know, where, yeah, if a doe is in such bad condition that she'll either abort the fetus or, you know, stop production of that fetus, um, yep. just, you know, as a defense mechanism, just to save her own life. So yeah, it's yep. amazing how, <laughs> how they've, uh, do those types of things just so they can try to survive that. Um, so then for the, you know, during the winter is usually, isn't it usually like towards the end of winter, that's usually the kind of the, the critical moment for deer. If, if we have like a really hard spring or like a later, you know, heavy snowfall or something like that, or late, you know, late winter, early spring, you know, heavy storms, that's more critical than if we have a harder winter early on. Yep, definitely. Um, the One of the most important factors is when spring arrives, essentially when winter stops, right? So if you think about it this way, when, when deer um, go into winter, they've got maximum fat reserves, right? And they're going to spend those in winter because number one, they, they eat less, their metabolism, metabolism slows down, but they eat less. They've migrated to areas where they can spend less energy because it's a little warmer, um, and there's a little more cover and that sort of thing, a little less snow. So they've done all kinds of things to help themselves out, but, and, and food is reduced, right? Because we've got more than a foot of snow on the ground, or even when we have snow on the ground, it's harder for them to access food, right? 
there's less food available and what is available tends to be woody and therefore less nutritious. So, so um, deer can sustain that a lot easier when they have really high fat reserves, right? And when their fat reserves are lower, as they go through the winter, their fat reserves decline. And as, so as they get later and later in winter, they have less and less fat. And if winter really drags on and spring is really delayed showing up, there's this period of time where they've got no fat reserves left. And deer can only hang on for so long in that, in that um, position, right? They're, they have evolved to survive through winter like this, but they can only do it for so long. So absolutely, the arrival of spring is more important than anything. Okay. So in regards to the actual time frame, are we looking at usually more like in February or like is March time still just as critical for them? Or even oh, into April, um, maybe? Or just depends I, on when the, what the weather does. I've lived here well over 20 years. I've never seen winter end in February here ever. Um, and okay. I think the earliest <laughs> I've ever seen is mid-March, and that's considered early here, right? Okay. That's still a long period of time. So it is not, it's not uncommon for us to still have more than a foot of snow on the ground at the end of March, right? So anytime yeah. we're, and, and, it, and it does, of course, it does depend when that starts, right? And to achieve that 90 days, right? So if it started, if we didn't have more than a foot of snow on the ground until mid-January, and we're talking about mid to late March, that's a shorter window of time, right? But deer gotcha. still aren't, they're still not putting fat on their body, you know, from, from October to mid-January, right? So, yeah, um, you know, the earlier it arrives, the better, regardless really of when it starts. But, um, I mean, it does play into it a little bit, but. Yeah. Yeah. So any anytime we sorry anytime we still have real winter going on in in April is definitely a problem. Okay. So I guess up where you're at then, um, when does you know you typically start to see the green the spring green up happen? Because um, I know at that point then that's kind of the you know they've kind of made it at that point once that green starts regenerating and they can really start put on the feedback again. Yeah. So it, it's really variable, right? Um, I would say, I mean, some, and sometimes it happens really quickly. This has been a really odd winter. We've had pulses of snow and then some melt offs, um, but we still haven't melted below a foot of snow. Although some of the Southern areas um, are probably a little less than a foot of snow right now. And, you know, as the sun gets stronger, it will, um, it'll uh, melt the snow on the North side of an East West road. And so you see deer out there feeding, right? They're yep. trying to get some resources that way. Yep. Um, boy, when does it usually happen up here? I would say, I mean, if I had, I'm, I don't have an average date to give you, but if I had to guess, I would say it is usually early April here. Okay. Um, there are some years definitely where it's a little bit earlier, but any, any time in from mid-March on, we would be psyched to see it go. We would we would feel like that would be a little bit better situation for deer. Gotcha. Okay. All right. And then the next thing that um, kind of the report talks about on the the where I guess the effect on the buck harvest is to talk about the role of predators um, yep. and deer mortality. And you kind of already touched base, but the report kind of dives into the the mortality or the predation of fawn um, yep. in regards to the different predators that are involved. So um, 
and you kind of talk about um, kind of the really that's kind of the four big ones: bears, coyotes, bobcat, and wolves. Yeah. Um, and then you break down, you know, in that report of kind of their percentages of how you know how they affect those those spawn uh, numbers. Um, so if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, so um, you're right. Um, those are the four major predators in the UP on fawns, black bears, coyotes, bobcats, and wolves. And they exist in different numbers, right? So uh, bears and coyotes are far more numerous. Um, and so this, this information was looked at at the low, medium, and high snowfall zone. Um, so we, we looked at these, these predator densities on all four, on all three of those snowfall zones. So, and in all three of those snowfall zones, bears and coyotes were far, far more numerous than bobcats and wolves. Um, bobcats and wolves um, tend to be pretty, uh, a lot closer to each other um, and a lot, lot lower than um, the number of bears and, and coyotes and the density of bears and coyotes. Um, so, and actually bobcats are higher than wolves in all of the snowfall zones other than the high snowfall zone. In the high snowfall zone, there are more wolves than bobcats, but that's just to kind of give you an, of an idea of where they fall. So in addition to predator densities, you also want to look at um, how efficient they are at killing fawns, right? Because first we were just looking at fawn mortality. So um, when you're looking at how efficient they are at killing fawns, bears and coyotes don't have um, the highest kill rates. They have, there are lots and lots of, of bears and coyotes, but they, they each kill fewer fawns than a bobcat does or a wolf does. The, the problem, or not the problem, but the way the math works out though, because there are so many more bears and coyotes, their effect on the population, the fawn population and fawn mortality, I should say, is a lot higher. They're just because of their sheer numbers, it's a lot higher. The most efficient killer of fawns are actually bobcats. Um, but you know, bobcats kill on average six and a half fawns um, a year per bobcat. And you know, obviously you can't kill a half a fawn, right? But this is, this is looking at averages. And so that's why that number is in there, right? Because right. um, not every bobcat's going to kill exactly the same number of fawns either, right? So it's an average. But so just because of the sheer, even though bobcats are far more efficient killers than than uh, coyotes or bears, coyotes and bears have a much larger effect on the population, a much larger impact on the fawn population, because they're they're so much more numerous. Yeah, because I think even the graph showed, I think. That you you already said that the bobcat was six and a half. I think wolf was somewhere around five uh, five, pounds. And five, then I think about five and a half. Yep. And I think the coyote and bear were both at about a one and a half or something like yep. somewhere around in there. But yeah, yep. and if you look at the graph, I mean they're what even though they're five times less as efficient of killers, they killer. I mean I don't even I couldn't really looking at the graph. You can't really see how many more times. Yeah, so I can give you those, kill. I'll give you those numbers real quick. These are approximate numbers because I'm just reading the scale on the graph. Coyotes, sure. there are about 60 coyotes in 100 square miles, and I would say 67, 68 bears per 100 square miles. And you're talking about 10 bobcats per square mile and 
um, probably six wolves per square mile. So really big difference, right? 67 yeah. and 60 coyotes and bears per square mile and six wolves per square mile. It's a, I mean, it's a massive difference, right? Yep. Yeah. And that was the other thing that was really interesting to see is just how, even though bobcat and wolves are far more efficient, the the sheer number of fawns that are killed by the coyotes and the bear is, yep. you, you, you can barely compare the two. Um, exactly. Is that stark of a difference? Yep. And so if you just if you just look at fawn survival in the first few months of life, right? So not looking at winter overwinter mortality or anything like that. If you just look at fawn survival in the first few months of life, pardon me, coyotes and bears account for um, over twenty percent, about twenty one percent of fawn mortality is just coyotes and bears. Wolves are about three and a half percent. Bobcats are five and a half percent. So that just gives you another way to reference that information. Okay. And that's just in the first few months, right? So. Right. I was gonna. I was. You kind of already answered. I was gonna ask if if that kind of like a when they make it to a certain point in their life, if that kind of transitions where the bears and coyotes are less, you know, effective at getting the fawns, and then maybe the the bobcat and the wolves is that when they're more um is that when the yeah i'm gonna say this right you know as they, they get older is it is it harder for the bears and coyotes to affect those fawns or is it still you know that first pretty much that first summer there so the reason the reason we looked at the data that way is because that's when fawns the highest uh mortality of fawns occurs is in the first few months of life right because they're dying from their uh, abandonment issues um, and natural causes of mortality and disease. And so their, their highest uh, vehicle collisions, their highest um, period in life of mortality is in those first few months. And so that's why we, we looked at that then, right? I mean, gotcha. bears really are only going after deer when they are fawns for the most part, right? So, um, so yeah, bear mortality would certainly drop off, but that's when that that highest window of mortality is is in those first few months for fonts. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's kind of that critical, you know, those yep. first few months are the critical ones. Once you kind of make it past that, then your likelihood yep. is probably much better, huh? Yeah, because if I mean if you look at survival of adult deer, it's considerably higher, right? It's about eighty percent, and that's and that's in a system with a lot of snow, right? Gotcha. Yeah, because that was the next thing that the, the report kind of talked about was the the adult doe mortality, and um, you know, really only um, at least for the predators wise, the only one that I remember reading through was um, was the wolves. That was really the only data that was really mentioned in that regard. So the bears and cows probably, and probably even bear, the bobcat, is it so low in a number that it's not really you know worth tracking or it's not significant enough, maybe. It's definitely a lot lower. So when you're looking at adult adult doe mortality, and the reason we didn't look at buck mortality, in case anybody's wondering, is because bucks, of course, are, are a heavy target um, during hunting season, right? So looking at their mortality is is kind of a waste of time. It's a completely different picture because they're the prime target during hunting season. Sure. Um, so if the big the big message um, for adult deer, adult doe mortality to keep in mind is that 80% of those deer that live, or 80% of those deer live. And so if you 
um, if you then look at the sources of mortality of the 20% that die, right? So if the 20% that die, the largest source of predation is definitely due to wolves. It's about um, eight and a half, I'm looking at the number here, about eight and a half percent of that 20% of does that die is due to wolves. And then the other three predators combined account for about three and a half percent. So wolves are more of a factor on those adult deer than the other three predators combined. Yep. Yeah. And not that, and still, you know, you're still talking about 20% um, predation. So um, I, I'm sorry, 20% mortality, right? So there are other sources of mortality in there as well. Yep. Yeah. Cause I think the, the other ones were um, still considered vehicle collisions. And I think, yep. I think just natural, natural sources of mortality. Yes. Yep. 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 Exactly. Winter kill is considered one of the natural sources of mortality as well. Sure. Um, cause yeah, cause even, um, cause what the data you're working with was, um, a group of collared deer that were you know, monitored and you use that as, you know, what the, you know, for the, for the baseline for the data. And I broke down even for the number of deer that survived and, or the, for the mortality rate of those deer, even the wolves, you know, if you count all the deer that were in the study, they counted for, I think just over one, one and a half percent of the total population that they affected. Um, Cause I know that 8% you're like, well, see, they're still killing lots of does. But if you look at even that smaller database of those colored deer, if I did my math right, it was only 1% or one and a half percent of the population um, that those wolves would have, uh, you know, killed uh, the whole okay. study group. Yeah, and I, I did not do the math that way to look at it that way. But yeah, you're right. The sample population was just over 400 radio collared does that they looked at. So it wasn't like we're basing it on 14 deer. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a pretty pretty good sample size over quite a lot of years. Yeah, the one so, thing I was interested in too is because um, in part of that data, um, it said that 43% of those does that were you know killed by wolves were more likely would not have made it through winter anyways. I'm curious how how is that determined that or how how is that determination made, I guess? Yeah, um that's something that didn't get into the report, but was something that we spent more time on when we've given this talk in person. And so okay. yes, yeah, so so the that's a it's a good question. It's just it was hard to decide how much of everything should go into the report. It's already pretty substantial read for for a lot of folks, it, right? So Yeah, yeah. So the, the first thing to look at there and what you're referencing is that, you know, the timing of those wolf kills on um, adult deer, most of those, almost 70% of those happened in March, April, and May. So deer have already gone through the bulk of winter. They've used up lots of body resources. They're already, you know, when you're talking about March and April, those deer are in poor physical shape period. Um, they're, they're in bad shape. And so if the bulk of those deer, the bulk of those does that wolves are killing are already in bad shape, 70% of those. And then when we looked at um, bone marrow fat is what you look at. So bone marrow, the fat okay. in bone marrow is the last fat that a deer's body uses 
um, before, you know, before it's all gone. So everything else is already all gone. All other fat is gone. All you have left is the fat that's in your bone marrow. And um, so we can look at a fat index um, in that bone marrow. And so if you, if you think about buying a, a steak with a, a bone in it at the grocery store, it's that solid white fat in the bone, right? That's, a, that's usually like 100% fat because it's nice and solid and white. Well, over the course of the winter, that fat changes color and consistency. So it'll start to be a little more spongy. Um, it'll start to have some red flecks in it, which all of this means the, the fat is being reduced from the bone marrow it will end up turning into red liquid. And um, so before it's even full on red liquid, that deer is beyond the ability to recover. So even if, I mean, that wolf is up, uh, that wolf, that deer is basically walking dead, right? So um, it's not uncommon for biologists in the UP to check the bone marrow fat of deer and when they're starting to migrate back, when it when we feel like, ooh, winter's almost over here, let's see what kind of shape these deer are in. Um, so ones that get hit by cars, we'll check that bone marrow fat. And if it's if it's like that red Kool-Aid, um, that deer was spending its last energy migrating, and more than likely it's either going to die on the way, which of course in this case it did. It was hit by a car. It sure. would die of of um, you know starvation on the way, or it would die when it got there. Right. So, so what you were referencing is of those, um, those deer that were killed uh, by wolves of that whole sample, almost half of them were deer that already were, weren't going to make it. You know, when that, when that um, bone marrow fat index reaches a certain point, the deer's done. It doesn't, it, yes, it got, it died from something, but the deer wouldn't have made it anyway. So, 43% of them, almost half of them were already at that stage. And there were arguably another chunk of them that were right on the doorstep of that stage, right? So they, um, if winter had persisted, they might not have made it either. So. Gotcha. Yeah. So when I read it, I'm like, well, how are you going to tell, like, if you come across a deer carcass that's been eaten by wolves, like there can't be much left to be able to go off of. So they just try to look at or find a, a bone that maybe still is intact. And then be able to pull pull the marrow from that, or look at that sample there. Yep, and that's like, why that sample size is a little bit smaller because not every kill has um, has a, a piece of bone left that you can do that analysis on. Yep. Sure. Yeah, I was curious about like, well, how do they know? Like, I'm sure there's not much left in many cases of be able to look yep. at. But like, ah, I don't know if that deer would have survived or not. But it's really interesting that they use such a uh, use that bone marrow as the as the marker. Yeah, and and wolves, um, you're right. Wolves do eat um, eat their carcasses, bones and all, right? So when people see a, a carcass in the woods and they see an intact deer carcass, and all the all, I mean, the meat's all gone, the hide's gone, um, but the bones are all intact. Definitely not a wolf kill because wolves are going to eat those bones, you know. Okay. Just another so, un, unrelated tidbit, but certainly. Is there something like that? Can is there like is there kind of a, an easy way to, you know, guts me that was probably some other large predator or is it could have been the scavengers too that came across a dead deer if the bones are still mostly intact? Uh, it could have been all kinds of things, but if wolves had come across that, they would have eaten the bones. They would have so, tore it apart. Okay, um, interesting. You know, coy coyotes, if, if you see chewed on bones, coyotes chew on bones, but they don't break them and eat them the way wolves do. 
I was just going to say all kinds of other things could have happened to that deer, right? It doesn't mean that we can say one thing or another. We can just say it wasn't wolves because they would have eaten it. Yeah. yeah I was going to say the only thing I've really noticed is like with coyotes, like they might like take certain parts of the deer, like the other areas, but they usually don't go far and it's usually still relatively still intact. So yeah, yeah that's interesting exactly. observation. Covers all the big topics. I guess the other thing is I know, I, I guess I've kind of, thought maybe this report was kind of talking about this in deer numbers in general, but it seems like that's not necessarily the case that you're just kind of looking at the buck harvest. But, you know, a lot of people talk about the, the deer numbers in UP that, you know, a lot of the talk is that the deer numbers are low or there's not any deer up in the UP anymore. So, I mean, based on your experience, I mean, what is the outlook of the deer herd in the UP? Yeah, I mean, people are not wrong in that deer numbers have declined and declined and declined um, in particular. Well, I mean, across the UP and in particular in the last, well, since 90, you know, the mid 90s. So what is that? Almost, well, I don't know, it's more than 20 years, right? Um, so, in, but it, it's just so, it's so linked to the number of severe winters we've had, right? And so, I mean, if we were able to get gosh, even two um, mild winters back to back would make an impact in the deer population. We would start to recover some of those numbers. Honestly, I mean, if we had a, a big pulse of a long pulse of consecutive mild or moderate winters, anything that was not a severe winter, we would see deer numbers increasing again. Um, we just haven't had that. You know, I've been in this office for 20 years and only once have there been three mild winters in a row. And I don't think there's ever been, maybe there was one other time with a mild and a moderate winter in consecutive years. But other than that, it hasn't happened. Um, and it just really, you just can't increase, you just can't grow your population back when you're continually losing your previous year's fawn crop, you know? Gotcha. So I guess with that, I mean, is there other programs that the DNR is currently doing or um, is there an action plan to try to help that deer population out to try to you know, get more of those, especially like you said, those fawns through the wintertime? Um, nothing. I mean, you know, the best thing to do would be to not have bad winters, right? And of course, we can't affect that at all. Um, so, you know, I mean, there there are some other some programs out there that can help in, improve summer habitat, but of course that's not really the major limiting period for deer, right? The limiting right. period for deer is winter. Um, and so, you know, there are supplemental feeding programs where the public can supplementally feed deer. That's always a bit risky because anytime you supplementally feed anything, even birds at your bird feeder, um, which I'm guilty of, um, anytime you supplementally feed anything, you are increasing the risk of disease spread. And the, the diseases that we're talking about spreading um, could include tuberculosis or chronic wasting disease, neither of which we want to have all over the Upper Peninsula, right? And the other thing with supplemental feeding um, as a way to support deer in winter is a lot of the foods that people want to feed um, aren't you know, it's like uh, if humans existed on potato chips all year, right? So there, you know, you can stay alive for a long time probably if you just ate potato chips, but it's not doing your body any good and it's it's not it's not always going to be enough, right? 
So, gotcha. so there are there are individuals. In the past, there have been some substantial supplemental feeding programs around here, and in the past, um, there have been situations where, uh, and so I've seen this during my graduate field work, and I've heard about it from lots and lots of other people where they're supplementally feeding deer, they're feeding them all winter long. There's more food than those deer can eat every single day, which isn't really supplemental anymore, right? And those, and there will be, they'll go out to, to put more food out and there will be fawns curled up dead right there in the middle of the feed. So there comes a, a point when it's insufficient. It's, it's not enough, right? They, they just can't handle winter conditions for that period of time okay yeah i guess because i i mean i do a lot of like you know my own habitat work and stuff like that um you know i sell my hunting properties and whatnot like and you know we already talked about how the the cedar and hemlock uh mm -hmm. you know is not yep. what it used to be you know i would think hey maybe if there was something that we could do to promote you know more hemlock mm -hmm. forests and more cedars you know that's going to help them during that winter time so I don't know. I don't know what that what the, what that program could look like, um, but I would think that yeah. that could be a solution. I mean, that, that's benefit. probably one of the, that's probably one of the biggest things there, right? Is if people can do everything they can to protect cedar and hemlock in deer winter yards is is a huge factor, right? And if they could um, if they could plant mesic conifers, right? So uh, cedar and hemlock and um, white pine, if they could plant those in places where they could become established, then those spots could be cover for deer as well in winter, right? And that's, those things could help as well. So every little bit of that that people do, because there, there is private land in deer wintering complexes. And, you know, some of those folks um, probably don't like having as many deer as they have on their property. And there are probably others that want to do everything they can to benefit the deer in those places. So, um, conserving those cedar and hemlock is is hugely important to to future deer populations, and trying gotcha. to increase it wherever they can. Gotcha. And then um, you were saying that's been such a long time since the the aspen have been harvested. I mean, is there you know up and coming going to be a significant number of aspen harvest um, coming up that could start that regeneration for the summer habitat? So in the um, in the state forest system, uh, there's a desire to not have decreasing aspen harvests, right? So that's basically saying we're we're trying to maintain a level of aspen harvest. Private landowners can do the same sort of thing, right? They can, you know, one of the things that you do that benefits deer in winter is to provide natural forage, right? So. If people are, again, in a deer yard, live in a deer yard or own property in a deer yard, um, if they're planning on doing any harvesting, if that harvesting occurred during winter, then it benefits deer because it's natural food that they, they can eat and their body's already planning on, on eating or hoping to eat, right? Those, those buds that they can browse are highly beneficial to deer. Um, so those, that's another way that people can really, can really help out is if, if you're in a deer yard or adjacent to a deer yard, right? Gotcha. Yeah, because I mean, I, it kind of seems to be a growing trend of, you know, that the much of the area, not even just in the state, but and then even regards to other types of wildlife, that a lot of different animals are dealing with degraded habitat 
and there's a growing, growing push for improving habitat. Um, you know, if it's, if it's cover, food, or, or you know, different water sources even. Um, yep. You know, they're talking about that with like the quail, the the, the sage grouse, the turkeys. Um, yep. And of course, white-tailed deer and whatnot. So. Yeah, anything that helps animals put fat on for winter with pretty much any animal is going to be a benefit, right? So a lot of people like to plant acorns or mast-producing crops and because that mast is available in the fall, and that's really great for, for animals going into winter as well. It really helps them put on fat. Right, yep. yep. And again, I mean, anyone that knows the, the draw that a food plot can have or something like that in a hunting situation, and depending on what you plant, I mean, they'll they'll be digging through that all winter long too. So, yep. All right. So, is there anything else um, from the report or anything else from this conversation that, that you think we needed to touch on or that we might have missed or want to reiterate another point? I can't really think of uh, anything off the top of my head. I guess I I guess I would just encourage folks to, you know, if to pay attention to to winter because it really, you know, all of these things interact together, right? But winter seems to clearly be the driving force, right? And and if, unfortunately, it's the thing that we can do nothing about, right? Um, sure, yeah. But, you know, anything that we do to maintain winter habitat and help animals put fat on in the fall so they go into winter in better shape and can withstand winter a little bit longer, those kinds of things will help deer um, especially when the the main driving force is something that we can't control at all. Gotcha. All right. Well, again, thank you for coming on and going back through this report and you know, going in a little bit deeper with some of the data that even the report didn't show. Um, again, it was just kind of one of those things where I got kind of, I was interested in the dynamics of the deer population up in the UP, especially because the conversation with, you know, primarily the wolf population um, that's got a lot of people very nervous. So I was just kind of doing a little bit of research and stumbling on your report. And uh, I thought it was, had a lot of good information, especially because it talks about, you know, how winter affects the deer population or how winters affect it, how the yep. habitat is affected, not just the predators. So it's not, a, right, yeah. not as uh, straightforward as you think. Right. And I, I think um, if, if folks go into reading the report with an open mind, they're really going to see that wolves are not the they're not making the biggest impact on deer of all those four predators at all. Um, and so if folks really want to take on, you know, uh, deer predators and have more of an impact then wolves really should probably not be their target. They're not the, they're not the main species out there having the biggest impact, which I, I think is, you know, I'm, I'm not being foolish here. Obviously that's not what a lot of people want to hear. It's not what a lot of people are going to believe, but it is what the data shows. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly, I mean, yeah, you, you always hear the horror stories of wolves in certain areas and then, yeah, it's, sometimes you got to kind of bring it back and look at the, look at the actual data, like you said, and realize mm -hmm. that if you were looking at, if you want to say fawn targeting wolves, is not, is not the way to go about it. You, it'd be, you know, like you said, bears, coyotes, and working on the habitat um, to help them get through winter. All right. Well, again, thank you. I'll let you go for the day. And uh, yeah, I think we'll wrap this one up. Sure. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. If any of your listeners um, or folks watching the recording are 
uh, want a copy of the report, um, feel free to put my email there and we can get it out to folks. Um, yep, I mean, do that or even I will link the um, the PDF to the report itself sure. right in the show descriptions, um, make it real easy for them. So yeah, I highly encourage that if anyone's interested, read through the report yourself, look at the data, look at the graphs especially because they, they are very telling when, when you got those figures in front of you um, and it's right there in that illustration for you to look at, so. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, thanks again. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, so that is a wrap with the conversation with Christy. Again, a lot of really good information um, from her, so I do appreciate her coming on and diving into the, the subject and explaining the some of the data and some of the points on this report as well. Again, if you want to read the report yourself and take a look at some of those graphs, especially uh, the link will be you know down in the show notes. So you can check that out, read through it for yourself. You know, kind of what I've gotten out of it, um, at least especially talking to her, that really the, the big deciding factor on the, the deer population and ultimately uh, what that report is really all about is the buck harvest, that winter is your deciding factor in regards to all that. But, and then as we kind of closed out, as you heard that we talk about some of the things that we can do to help the deer population out. So especially if you are a whitetail fanatic like I am, there are things that we can do to help the deer herd out, help our, you know, help the population out and help, you know, sustain a healthy uh, deer population. So with that, we're gonna end it here. And as always, get out there, be safe and have fun.